Russia steps up its aerial barrage on Ukraine. This time, the attack really targeted almost every area in Ukraine, west, south, east and north. Plus, the Biden administration is finding ways to provide military aid for Ukraine as the stalemate in Congress over future funding continues. The U.S. is starting to get a little creative. 300 million that they're giving is from the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. That is a fund that focuses on future needs, and they're going to use this to provide laser-guided munitions. And later in the program, archaeologists find hundreds of valuable artifacts in newly exposed areas on the site of Ukraine's destroyed Kohovka Dam. Today is Friday, November 3rd. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Ukraine. Good evening, I'm Lori London in Washington. Russia unleashed a wave of nighttime drone and missile attacks across 10 of Ukraine's 24 regions. The attacks caused fires in homes and public buildings, especially in the southern Kherson region, which Moscow has increasingly targeted in recent weeks. Joining me for an update... Anna Chernikova in Kyiv. So, Anna, Russia unleashed a really horrific attack of drone and missile strikes across, it looks like, 10 of Ukraine's 24 regions overnight. What can you tell us about the latest on what you know? Yes, a very bad attack happened over the night, uh, and probably it's the most massive attack that we've seen in the recent weeks here in Ukraine. This time, the attack really targeted almost every area in Ukraine, west, south, east, and north, and all also central parts. But the main target and the most hits were reported in the city of Kharkiv and in the city of Kharkiv and Kharkiv region and in the Lviv region. Uh, the main target this time again was energy infrastructure and, and critical infrastructure. So as we have confirmation from the Ukrainian Air Forces, Russian Federation launched 38 drones and one X-59 missile over Ukraine over the night. Uh, Ukrainian air defense uh, shoot down 24 drones and a missile. Particularly, at least 10 drones hit civilian infrastructure in the Kharkiv and Kharkiv region. And uh, at this point, a service station, a defense shop and residential building were damaged in the city of Kharkiv. The most damaged were in the educational institution, Kharkiv College of Transport Technologies. It was partially destroyed. The roof and upper floors were destroyed, uh, as well as windows were broken. Uh, just now, an update came from the city of Kharkiv. It was confirmed that Kharkiv College building had to be demolished to reduce the risk for local residents. And uh, according to preliminary data, no casualties were reported. However, at least eight residents of Kharkiv uh, turned to doctors with an acute reaction to stress. And uh, the second worst attack, as I mentioned, happened in Lviv region. Five drones hit energy and critical infrastructure in the Lviv region. 16 drones in total were targeting the, the area in the western part of the country. And 11 11 drones were destroyed. Are they also reporting power outages due to all of this? Uh, at this point, we do not have confirmation of that from the local authorities. However, this could change. At this point, no changes in any electricity supply data or anything like that. And I understand the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine met with the new House of Representatives Speaker, Mike Johnson, recently. Yes, U.S. ambassador to Ukraine, Bridget Brink, just reported on Twitter that she met with the newly elected speaker of the House of Representatives, 
Mike Johnson, and she confirmed that she spoke with him uh, particularly about support for Ukraine. I will quote, she said that it was an honor, an honor to meet Speaker Johnson uh, to discuss the importance of enabling Ukraine to stop Russian aggression in Europe. And uh, of course, this, this comes in line with uh, all this latest report with potential support, less support that Ukraine can get from the allies. So Ukraine is definitely hoping that this meeting will help to get support on time. Anna Chernikova reporting from Kyiv. Thank you so much. Thank you. The UN's Humanitarian Office Coordination Director Ramesh Rajingham at a briefing to Security Council members earlier this week said Russian strikes are inflicting unimaginable levels of suffering on Ukrainian civilians. Currently some 18 million people, more than 40% of the entire Ukrainian population, are in need of some form of humanitarian assistance. 10 million people also remain displaced, either internally or as refugees in other countries. What the people of Ukraine need more than anything else is for this devastating war, with its unceasing death, destruction and suffering, to be brought to an end. He added that while the world is rightly concerned about what's happening in the Middle East... It is important that we do not lose a focus on other crises, particularly not one as brutal and far-reaching as that precipitated by the war in Ukraine. Last winter, Russia took aim at Ukraine's power grid in an effort to deny civilians light and heating and chip away at the country's appetite for war. Ukrainian officials accused the Kremlin of weaponizing winter. The U.S. House of Representatives on Thursday passed a Republican plan to provide $14.3 billion in aid to Israel. Democrats in the Senate say the bill has no future as they work on a separate bill that includes money for both Israel and Ukraine. Despite the standoff in Congress, the United States is looking at other ways to get support to Ukraine. For details, I spoke with VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb. Carla, there's been so much consternation lately about uh, congressional funding continuing for Ukraine, but we are just getting word the United States expected to deliver $425 million in new military aid for Ukraine. What are you hearing about this? Yeah, so the U.S. is starting to get a little creative in how it provides Ukraine with some funding. There is still about $5 billion in aid with the presidential drawdown authority that allows the Pentagon to pull from its weapon stockpiles. So of this $425 million, about $125 million of that will be exactly um, what I described, pulling from the Pentagon's stockpiles. This is the 50th time they've done that. And this package, I've been told by officials, is going to include rockets for HIMARS, not the ATACMS that they want not the longer range ones, but the shorter range ones, the Gimlers, more munitions for the National Advanced Surface to Air Missile System that protects their cities from missiles, more 105 millimeter and 155 millimeter rounds, transport trucks to, to carry, carry heavy equipment to the battlefield, and things like cold weather gear, for example, things that they're going to need for these winter months. The way that the U.S. is starting to get creative in how they provide Ukraine with aid is the last $300 million. So officials are telling me that the $300 million that they're giving is from the Ukraine Security Assistance Initiative. That is a fund that focuses on future needs. And they're going to use this to provide laser-guided munitions uh, to Ukrainians. That's what two officials tell me. But, but the tricky part here is the U.S., the Pentagon ran out of U.S. AI funds earlier this year. So I'm asking officials, okay, well, how can you give the money that you don't have? And the way they're doing it is they are using funds that were approved by Congress to keep the government running 
in a in a continuing resolution we call it they're using that fund that 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 pile of money to take what would have been provided this time last year and at that time they found th- at least 300 million dollars to pull out of the budget the continuing resolution budget and give it to Ukraine and that is all because congress hasn't passed a budget and they've had to pass this continuing resolution which the pentagon has decided to capitalize on to provide money for for future needs for Ukraine. So they are looking ahead for future needs for Ukraine, but as we know, weapons, certainly ammunition, gets used up and it needs to continuously be replenished. How long do they anticipate this will last before there'll be a need again, and then what happens? Well, the United States has known for several weeks now that they've had about $5 billion left in this presidential drawdown authority funds to pull from Pentagon stockpiles to get those weapons to Ukraine immediately on the battlefield. That has been going on for several weeks. And so you have seen pretty much every week to week and a half, the Pentagon has still been pulling out 125 million here, 150 million here to get them that equipment, to get them those munitions. So they don't know how much longer that money will last, but it could potentially last several more weeks, of course, because as long as they're pulling 100, 200 million at a time, you can take many, many chunks out of $5 billion. So there is a potential for it to last longer. However, some things cost a lot of money and they may be what Ukraine needs, but the United States just can't afford to give them something that costs a lot of money because then that's going to take a big chunk out of this $5 billion that they have. That's why it's so important for Congress to pass a bill with additional Ukraine funding. And right now we have seen on the House side, the House has passed a bill for Israel's defense funding, but not Ukraine's. And many in the Senate have made clear that they want to pass a bill that funds both Ukraine aid and Israel aid at the same time. So still a lot of back and forth in the House over how that funding is going to get passed. What happens if if U.S. is continuing to pull weapons from its existing stockpiles? Would that potentially put the U.S. at risk of not being ready with its own weapons in case it needs it? I mean, how does it replenish its own stockpiles? And are there concerns about that? So simultaneously, while the U.S. has been providing Ukraine with weapons from its stockpiles, the U.S. has also been replenishing its own stockpiles. But again, they're going to need more money to continue to replenish these funds. And over here at the Pentagon, people have been looking at it in in the sense that this is an opportunity for the Pentagon to get better equipment, to get newer equipment. You know, equipment has an expiration date too. You can't just make something and expect it to work for 50 years. And then there's a lot of equipment that they've been passing on to the Ukrainians that they haven't needed to use. And they've been wanting to replace it with equipment that they would be able to use. So that is going on, but that cannot continue if Congress does not pass additional funding for Ukraine. So this building is looking every day over at Capitol Hill, hoping that something will get passed. All right. VOA Pentagon correspondent Carla Babb, thank you so much for all the insights. You're welcome. Meanwhile, the U.S. is sanctioning more foreign firms in a bid to choke off Russia's supplies for its war in Ukraine. Associated Press correspondent Donna Warder reports the U.S. is trying to disrupt Russia's military supply chain. The sanctions imposed by the Treasury Department on 30 30-
Thursday target 130 firms and individuals from China, Turkey, and the United Arab Emirates. The parties are accused of helping Moscow in procuring equipment needed on the battlefield, and they include suppliers and shippers. The U.S. State Department also has imposed diplomatic sanctions targeting Russia energy production and its metals and mining sector. Donna Water, Washington. Conflict in Ukraine and the Middle East has brought the need to diversify energy sources into focus, and that's perhaps why German Chancellor Olaf Scholz is making his third attempt in two years to visit sub-Saharan Africa. David Doyle with Reuters has more. This weekend, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz makes his third trip to sub-Saharan Africa, so what's it about? Well, the backdrop is conflict in other parts of the world and their impact on Germany's energy supplies. After Russia invaded Ukraine in February 2022, Germany turned to Qatar for liquefied gas. But an eruption of violence focused on the Gaza Strip raises fears of disruption in the Middle East. A legislator for Germany's Greens, Anton Hofreiter, said the impetus for the trip comes from Berlin's realization that it needs Africa more than previously thought. As such, Schultz will be stopping in major energy producer Nigeria, as well as Ghana. Oil is Nigeria's single largest export to Germany, and officials are considering adding gas to that mix. One barrier to that, though, is chronic underinvestment in Nigeria's energy sector. That's something that a business delegation accompanying Schultz may be able to address. Nigeria and Ghana might also be seen as potential sources of labor, as Germany's population is increasingly aged out of the workforce. Christoph Kannengeiser is managing director of the German-African Business Association. I personally think that, especially when it comes to immigration from African countries, we are paying more attention to the opportunities that lie here. Some in Berlin would also like Germany to play a constructive role in West Africa, a region that has been marked by political instability. It does not have the same political baggage in West Africa as former colonial power France. Last year, Germany returned several Benin bronzes to Nigeria. That gesture was seen as an attempt to win favor on a continent where anger at European colonial crimes still smolders. David Doyle with Reuters reporting. EU leaders will decide at a summit in mid-December whether to grant Ukraine the formal start of membership talks, which for Kyiv is a top priority on a par with Western military and financial support. Germany's foreign minister said Thursday she is confident the European Union next month will advance Ukraine's bid to join the bloc at a summit seen as a key milestone in Kyiv's efforts to integrate with the West. Ukraine would become the EU's fifth most populous member state, as well as its poorest, meaning that under current rules, it would absorb much of the bloc's generous agriculture and development aid at the expense of current members.
You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Ukraine. I'm Lori London. South Korea's military says North Korea has likely supplied several types of missiles to Russia to support its war in Ukraine, along with its widely reported shipments of ammunition and shells. We hear more from Associated Press correspondent Karen Shamus. South Korea's military told local journalists that North Korea is suspected of sending short-range ballistic missiles, among other types of ammunition, to Russia. Last week, South Korea, Japan and the US condemned the alleged shipment of weapons, saying it would increase the death toll in Ukraine. Any arms deals with North Korea is in violation of many resolutions made by UN Security Council, of which Russia is a permanent member. Both Russia and North Korea have dismissed the weapons shipment accusations as baseless. I'm Karen Shamas. The war between Israel and Hamas has sparked a rise in anti-Semitism in Russia, with the past few days having what observers say has been the worst outbreak in decades. As VOA Moscow Bureau reports, the incidents have created a climate of fear and uncertainty for Russia's Jewish community, among the largest in the world. Marcus Harton narrates this report from Moscow. Hundreds of men on Sunday broke into the Mahachkala airport in southern Russia's Muslim-majority Republic of Dagestan. Their aim, to intercept the passengers of a flight that had just arrived from Tel Aviv, Israel. Observers described this as the biggest explosion of anti-Semitism in Russia in decades. Russian President Vladimir Putin blamed outside forces. He says the events in Mahachkala were instigated, among other things, through social networks, not least from Ukraine, by the hands of agents of Western Special Services. An ethnic crisis in the Caucasus would be a major challenge for the Kremlin, experts say, because the Russian leadership sees social control as a top priority. Alexander Verkovsky is the director of the Sova Research Center, a non-governmental organization in Moscow that monitors radical nationalism in Russia. He says the most important thing for the state is to maintain political stability and avoid any type of protests. He says that Russia's leaders have handled these crises well so far, but that it is impossible to know if they will do so in the future. For Jews in Russia, the incident at Dagestan is a reminder that the Israel-Hamas conflict can mutate into a local threat, and not only in the Muslim-majority republics. Rabbi Alexander Boroda, president of the Federation of Jewish Communities of Russia, says people are undoubtedly affected by the Israeli-Arab conflict due to different ideological anti-Jewish theories of radical Islam. He says that this effect is also going on in Russia, in all other cities, and that makes it a potential threat. Maybe not even a potential one, but a real threat might be in the large cities of Russia. Many of the Jewish community's biggest Kremlin critics went into exile after the start of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. They included Chief Rabbi of Moscow, Penchas Goldschmidt, who served in that post for almost 30 years. The situation in Russia is going to get worse in general. And it is also going to get worse for Jews in particular. 
So whoever can leave, not everyone can leave. Some people have elderly parents, or some people have to finish their studies. But whoever can leave should really leave. The Mahachkala Airport has returned to normal since it was stormed in the largest anti-Jewish outbreak in memory in this region. But with the war in the Middle East escalating, there is fear that something similar or worse may happen. For the VOA Moscow Bureau, Marcus Harton, VOA News. Hi, I'm Steve Miller, Managing Editor of VOA's Audio Programs. Today, I have an important announcement to make about an upcoming change to Flashpoint Ukraine. Beginning on Monday, November 6th, Flashpoint Ukraine will move to a weekly format. But that's not all. We're also thrilled to introduce our brand new daily podcast, Flashpoint Global Crises. Now, this podcast will not only address the ongoing conflicts in the Middle East and Europe, but will also dive into the tensions and environmental impact affecting regions all around the world. So get ready for in-depth analysis and discussions on the critical issues shaping our world. Stay tuned for more updates and join us on this journey to better understand the global crises that define our times. And finally today, after an explosion destroyed the Kahovka Dam in early June 2023, the water level dropped in the reservoir above the dam in the Dnipro River in Ukraine's Zaporizhia region. Since then, archaeologists have found hundreds of valuable artifacts in the newly exposed areas of the site in the Khortasia National Reserve. Eva Marinova has the story narrated by Anna Rice. Archaeologists from the Zaporizhia region of Ukraine have found another artifact in the Dnipro River, an 18th century anchor dating back to the Russo-Turkish War of 1735-1739. This anchor shows it was a flotilla mooring spot here. This find is very interesting from a scientific point of view, too. This is the second anchor found here. Two months earlier, a so-called cat anchor was found here as well. This latest find is in great shape, both its metal and wooden parts. But it's not going to be easy to preserve, says Nifyodov. The difficulty in conservation and restoration lies in the fact it's made of two materials, wood and metal. Wood conservation requires one technology, and metal conservation a totally different technology. At least five antique boats are on display here at the Museum of Navigation in Khoritsa. They were found and restored before Russia's invasion and the June explosion at the Kahovka Dam, which lowered the water levels in the reservoir above it and revealed more archaeological artifacts. This is our latest find. It was possible to retrieve it after the shallowing of the Dnipro River, caused by the Kahovka Dam explosion. It is a clapboard fragment that belonged to a very large cargo ship. It's not just boats. The shallow Dnipro has revealed entire villages, says archaeologist Pavlo Dimenka. 
We discovered a Scythian-era settlement at the Baida Island. No one has seen it before because it was meters under the water. But Dnipro's shallowing also presents an opportunity for so-called black archaeologists, who find artifacts and sell them on the black market. Local authorities are now stopping people and checking them with a metal detector. Anchors seem to be the most desirable finds for treasure hunters or black archaeologists. Many would love to have one at home, make it an interior accent. And those who don't understand just take it to scrap metal collectors. Since the explosion at the Kahovka Dam, local archaeologists have already found over 2,000 artifacts. For Yeva Mironova in the Zaporizhia region of Ukraine, NRI's VOA News. And that'll do it for us today. Stay up to date with continuing coverage of Ukraine and news from around the world 24 hours a day at voanews.com. And on social media, just follow VOA News. On behalf of all of us here at VOA, thank you so much for listening. Have a great weekend. Until next time, I'm VOA's Lori London. This is the voice of America. Washington, Papa, Bozette, D.C.